This is Shivaraman again from Johns Hopkins. Now, we've been talking the last few weeks about GI bleeding and utilizing CT. And of course, we started by talking about protocols, the rationale for performing these studies. And then we went into some detail about how exactly to take an algorithmic approach to go about interpreting the images in real life. Now, last week we ended by talking about a few diagnoses that are relatively common but may not be associated with active extravasation. And let's continue on that same topic and now talk about a few diagnoses that occur in different age groups. And first of all, let's talk about a diagnosis that's unique to patients who are elderly, and that's stercoral colitis. Now, I can't tell you, over the last few years dealing with residents and fellows, how often people have never heard of this entity, right? We tend to just say constipation, and we tend to actually blow it off in our dictations. I'd say in most cases, when a patient is really constipated, it doesn't even show up in your report at all. But the honest truth is constipation can be a big deal, and in particular, over-distension of the rectal lumen from impacted stool, so-called stercoral colitis, can be devastating. I've seen a few cases where this has actually resulted in lower GI bleeding, and unfortunately, I've seen a few cases where it's resulted in frank perforation. So this is the kind of diagnosis that can actually kill a patient. So why is this a big deal? Well, if you over-distend the rectal lumen with impacted, formed, hard stool, gradually you reach a point at which that luminal pressure causes rectal wall ischemia. And at some point, the blood supply to the wall is actually disrupted. Now, if that continues for too long and you don't disimpact the patient appropriately, you can start to develop ulcers within the rectal wall. And that's why these patients not infrequently develop chronic lower GI bleeding. It tends to not be active bleeding. It's not huge exsanguination, but it tends to be this kind of chronic low-level bleeding over long periods of time. And unfortunately, if you leave this alone, you don't do anything about it, these patients can perforate. And this happens probably once a year at every institution that I've worked at. Now, this is not at all uncommon. It probably affects up to 6% of all elderly, elderly patients. And in my experience, it tends to be elderly patients who are in long-term care facilities. Often, they're not able to verbalize the fact that they're constipated. And so as a result, they tend not to get treated effectively. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you're almost never going to see active extravasation. So if you're doing arterial phase imaging through the rectum, you're not going to see active extravasation. But that doesn't matter, right? These are slow, intermittent bleeds. And if I see a patient whose CT scan is otherwise negative, but I see distension of the rectum with formed hard stool, I'm going to suggest this diagnosis. Now, in most cases, when a patient is actually having bleeding as a result of stercoral colitis, the rectal wall doesn't look normal. It's going to be thickened, and you're usually going to see some degree of mild perirectal inflammation and stranding, and you might see some mild hyperemia of the rectal mucosa. So here's an example. This is about an 85-year-old who was having kind of chronic lower GI bleeding, lived in a long-term care facility, and you can see that there is massive distension of the rectum. That is a huge amount of formed fecal material. And hopefully, this is something you just wouldn't blow off in your dictation. Notice how the rectal wall is thickened, quite significantly, in fact, when you go down more inferiorly. And if you look carefully, there's some subtle induration and fat stranding in the perirectal fat. This is stercoral colitis. This is a critical diagnosis to make, and unfortunately, in my experience, we just tend not to make the diagnosis appropriately all that often. Here's another example. Again, an old patient, maybe 75 or 80, thickening of the rectum. Notice how there's that presacral soft tissue thickening and edema, subtle induration in the perirectal fat. This patient was having low-level GI bleeding, abdominal pain. No one had been able to figure out why. And if you don't make the diagnosis here, this is a patient who can go on to perforate. Remember, dilated rectum, lots of form fecal material, thickening of the rectum with perirectal induration, 
You've got to make the diagnosis. And in fact, I tend to be very explicit in my dictations. I say that this patient is at risk for perforation, and I recommend that the patient be disimpacted. Maybe the ER physician won't like it. It's not fun to disimpact a patient, but honestly, it's the best thing for the patient, and you might help prevent a horrible outcome. Now, that's a diagnosis to consider when you're dealing with someone who's quite old. There are two diagnoses to think about when you're dealing with a young patient who has lower GI bleeding. First is inflammatory bowel disease, and the second is a Meckel's diverticulum. Now, inflammatory bowel disease, I'd say that almost every patient who has ulcerative colitis is going to have GI, lower GI bleeding, typically rectal bleeding, and a quite substantial percentage, maybe about a quarter of all patients with Crohn's disease are going to have bleeding as well. And in both of these cases, it's not at all uncommon to see patients initially present with acute, severe, lower GI bleed hemorrhage. Now, Meckel's diverticulum, on the other hand, is a diagnosis that gets missed all the time. And i got to be honest, these are really, really tough diagnoses to make, particularly prospectively. You know, I've looked back and I've seen some cases where they found them on a nuclear medicine study or the diverticulum has been found at surgery. And I go back and look at the CT scan and I have a hard time finding the Meckel's diverticulum even in retrospect. Rarely you'll see one because you get lucky. And in other cases, you may catch it because there's acute inflammation. Maybe there's Meckel's diverticulitis, or you'll see that once-in-a-lifetime case of an inverted Meckel's diverticulum. The most common presenting symptom for these patients is going to be a painless lower GI bleed. So even though this is not a diagnosis, we think about that often. When I'm dealing with a young patient, you know, 18, 20, maybe in their teens, who comes in with painless lower GI bleeding, I'm going to spend some time. I'm not just going to blow through that study and 50 seconds, but I'm going to take my time, really trace the small bowel, and look for that subtle Meckel's diverticulum. Take it from me. I found a few of these. They're quite small. They tend to not be very large. They tend to be very easily missed if you don't take the time to actually look for it. So here's an example of a patient who has lower GI bleeding, and they've got horrible Crohn's disease, right? Really bad thickening of a large segment of distal small bowel. The TI is really thickened in the image on the right classic Crohn's disease. Even though I don't see active extravasation, it doesn't matter. I can give the clinician a pretty good explanation for why the patient's having GI bleeding. Here's another example. Unfortunately, we've given the patient positive contrast, so I can't tell you whether or not there's active extravasation, but again, it doesn't matter. This is a young patient having lower GI bleeding. Notice how there's continuous thickening all the way from the rectum, proximally up into the rectosigmoid colon. Classic distribution for ulcerative colitis. In my experience, these tend to have pretty significant bowel wall thickening, but there's often a relative paucity of periclonic fat stranding and inflammation, as in this case. Notice, in addition, that the colon itself looks relatively ahostral, featureless. There's not many, many folds there. That's classic for someone who's had repetitive bouts of ulcerative colitis in the past. Now, here's one of the better examples of Meckel's diverticulum that I've seen in the last year or two. This patient had been having chronic bleeding, Notice the Meckles, and there's some high-density material there. So maybe that's a sentinel clot sign. Maybe that's a little bit of blood within the Meckles lumen. In my experience, oftentimes they don't tend to look like an appendix. They're not long in nature. They tend to be kind of round, bulbous, and relatively short, and that makes them just blend in with the remainder of the small bowel. So they're really, really tough to see. You, if you don't take the time to look for them, you're, you're never going to catch it. Now, the diagnoses that we do tend to make of Meckles tend to be when they're inflamed. Here's a Meckles that it's inverted, and it's actually inflamed. And you can see that fat stranding, a little bit of inflammatory change around that site in the small bowel. That's acute inflamed Meckles, or Meckles diverticulitis. And in my experience, that tends to be associated with lower GI bleeding. Now, the final step when you're looking at these studies 
is to look for a malignancy. Now, when I talk to residents or fellows, inevitably the first thing they're thinking about is, well, this person's bleeding. I better make sure they don't have colorectal cancer. Now, that's a good thing to look for. You know, I'm not going to dissuade you from making that a part of your search pattern. It certainly is a part of mine. But the honest truth is that cancer is not that common a cause of lower GI bleeding, particularly in the ER or acute setting. It accounts for less than 10% of all bleeds in patients over the, age, over the age of 50. And for the most part, if you have a GI carcinoma, whether it's a small or large bowel, it tends to be chronic occult bleeding. Of course, in theory, anything can happen, and we have seen a few cases at Hopkins where tumors in the large or small bowel have presented acutely to the emergency room. They tend to be huge tumors in most cases, and they do in fact present with massive lower GI bleeding. Now, one of the reasons why we have dual phase imaging is that we want to be able to diagnose the full gamut of hypervascular and hypovascular tumors. Now, the majority of colon cancers that we're going to be looking for are going to be hypovascular, but you want to be able to diagnose that carcinoid tumor, that hypervascular GI stromal tumor, so on and so forth, that could also be causing bleeding and might be more visible on the arterial phase rather than the venous phase. So here's something that none of us are going to miss, right? huge ulcerating mass that's located within the sigmoid colon. This patient was having pretty bad lower GI bleeding, presented to the emergency room, not exactly a diagnostic dilemma. You don't need to be have a specialized search pattern to make this diagnosis, easy diagnosis of GI cancer. But here's the kind of malignancies you don't want to miss. These are two different patients. And I can imagine if you don't take the time to run the bowel, if you don't look carefully for a tumor, you're not going to be able to make the diagnosis. In the example on the left, you see that circumferential annular constricting lesion. There's focal wall thickening in the right colon. That's a, clearly a carcinoma, right? I can tell you even before they go to colonoscopy that that's going to be a tumor. And that's in fact what it was. And it was causing GI bleeding in that patient. In the example on the right, again, not a diagnostic dilemma provided that you take the time to look, right? There's an annular constricting lesion, thickening of that distal transverse colon, and the colon right proximal to it is mildly dilated, so it is probably causing some mild obstruction. If you don't look, you're not going to make the diagnosis. Now, as I mentioned, you can't always just focus on the venous phase images. One of the reasons why I like having the arterial phase is that I want to catch hypervascular tumors as well. In the example on the right, or in the example on the left, you see that the patient has a hypervascular mass abutting the duodenum. That's a hypervascular GI stromal tumor. And in the example on the right, it's a pretty subtle mass. There's thickening and mild hyperemia of the distal ileum, right at the ileocecal valve. That's a carcinoid tumor. And if you don't look, you're not going to find it. And moreover, if you don't have the right phases of imaging, if you don't have the arterial phase, these are diagnoses that can be quite difficult. So, in summary, hopefully I've been able to convince you that MDCT is in fact a good option in the setting of acute GI bleeding, and in my opinion, gives you way more information than any other potential radiologic modality. I know that we've been all trained to think that colonoscopy is the end-all be-all of lower GI bleeding, but in my opinion, the more research I've done, the more papers I've looked at, I think there's a really good argument to be made that you shouldn't be starting with a colonoscopy, but rather, you might be better off starting with a CT scan. Now, if you're going to implement these protocols in your own hospital, it is critical that you have the proto proper protocol design in place. As I mentioned earlier, you've got to have dual-phase imaging. If you don't have at least two phases in place, you're not going to be able to distinguish active extravasation from just barium or other high-density materials sitting within the bowel. Bad protocols make bad diagnoses. Finally, 
these are complex studies, right? There's a lot of different study to look, different things to look for, a lot of different things to miss, to be perfectly honest. And if you don't utilize an algorithmic approach, if you're not consistent, if you're not taking a reproducible approach to the images, you're not going to make the right diagnoses, or at the very least, you're not going to catch all of the possible diagnoses. I have a four-step approach. Goal number one, I'm looking for active extravasation. Goal number two, I'm looking at the vasculature, looking for AVMs, angiodysplasia, and other vascular abnormalities that might cause bleeding. Goal number three, looking for other infectious or inflammatory causes of bleeding, whether it's diverticulosis, AV, uh, ischemia, aortoenteric fistula, sterical colitis, and so on and so forth. And then finally, goal number four, I'm looking for those rare cases of small or large bowel tumors that might cause acute bleeding. If you look at these four things in every case, I promise you, you're going to make the right diagnosis more often than not. So that's all I have. It was great talking with you guys, and I'll see you guys soon. Bye.